From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. F dialed his local telephone service provider and immediately heard light jazz music. There were many options to be listened to and prompts to enter the digits of his home telephone number and social security number. A voice said the average waiting time to speak to a customer service representative was, but did not finish the sentence. Imagine this. A deserted intersection, late at night. The light's been red for at least a minute, and there's no one coming from either direction. But you wait, and wait, and the light stays red. Now you have to pee. You're a careful driver. You're a cautious driver. Running this light would not be an unsafe decision. So why not run it? Why not indeed? You check for cops, see none, and roll into the intersection. Suddenly, a flash of white light. You're on candid camera. You'll be getting a snapshot of yourself, along with a ticket, in just a few days. This is my mom's story. And one thing I want to make clear before beginning the story is that my mom is a solid citizen. A voting, tax-paying, brownie-baking, homeowner-associating doer of good deeds. This story concerns a lapse. A lapse that ended with my mom browsing the internet for and nearly purchasing shady, probably illegal cloaking devices for her car. How did this happen? Well, I'll let her explain. You ready? Yeah, I guess. What happened the first time when you got the red light ticket? Tell me, what, what, how did that happen? This is so funny. Um, well, it was mid-October of last year, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I was driving home, and I happened to have been at a bar, which you know me. Uh-huh. I'm not a bar hopper type. But I'd had probably two glasses of wine. Uh-huh. I know this part of the story. <laughs> I know, so I guess that's why I have... But I wasn't drunk by any stretch. Uh-huh. So, um, there was a left turn arrow, but it was red. But it was 11 o'clock at night, and nobody was coming. It wasn't like I was driving, you know, speeding through a red light, not knowing what I was doing. I was... I knew exactly what I was doing. Yeah. And so I make the left turn... And then I see, really the first thing I see is the kids across the intersection jumping up and down. And then, you know, prior to, right prior to that, the light, all these lights had gone off. Why were they jumping up and down? Because they it's thought like, it was funny that, uh, that their red light camera had gone off. Because it's, it's this big flash. It's like, you know, Fourth of July fireworks going off. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was at first. I was like, what's going on? And then I realized... That that's what a red. I had no idea what a photo enforced red light thing was. It never happened to me. So my mom learned a hard lesson about red light cameras and how they can get you even when no one's around. The ticket came in the mail not very long after, accompanied by some pictures of her from that night, caught in the act, unaware, sort of like the kind you can buy after you ride Space Mountain. A couple weeks later, I get this thing in the mail and it shows a picture this is the law now they have to have a picture of you from the front like the middle and the back of you in the in the car and I guess and and they have to have the license plate they have to be able to see the license plate 
Right, because that's how they send you the ticket, is they see your license plate and that's they get your address and send you the ticket. And there's a video. So you can get online, because you can dispute it. You can get online and watch the video. Did you do that? Yeah. And I just, there's me. You know, I could tell it was me. Uh -huh. And I, boop, driving right through the light. Do you remember what you were thinking? No, I was thinking, I want to go home. I'm not stopping for this stupid light. Being the kind of person she is, my mom investigated. She wanted to see if she could beat the ticket somehow, find a loophole. She learned she wasn't the only person who had a problem with red light cameras. When they first started these red light, these photo-enforced tickets, there was all this controversy because the way it works is the company that installs these cameras gets a percentage of the fine. So it's a $375 fine and I think the company that installs the cameras gets like half of that. Right. So it's to their advantage to have as many people as possible get tickets and they were setting it up so that like there might be a yellow light for a nanosecond but then it would turn red so they they, they get you. You know, and so people fought that, and the courts, you know, this is a few years ago, the courts threw out all the red lights ticket because they said it wasn't fair that, you know, you could, there'd be like a one second yellow and that, you know, and then it would turn red, and, you know, because they, they were like entrapping people. There were a number of problems with the system. Some judges threw out the cases because police officers were unable to vouch for the camera's accuracy. But for all she turned up, my mom still had to pay her ticket and go to online traffic school. She thought that was the end of it, but no. And then where was the second red light ticket? The, se the second red light ticket was fairly close by. It was on Loma Santa Fe, and I think it's called, I don't know, it's right by that Marshalls, you know, where you turn to go into Marshalls there. By the gas station? Yeah. Yeah, I was. It was actually on like February something, so it was like five months later, and I was leaving Starbucks. It was <clears throat> about 4:30 ish. It was like getting, starting to get dark, and I was in the right turn lane, turning right, and I just you know rolled right through the intersection and didn't stop. Did you know that it was photo enforced? No, I didn't know it was photo enforced. So what did you think when you saw the flash again? Can I cuss? I went, oh, Because I knew I just got another ticket. Well, it was funny because I went through the intersection, and, I, and because it was daylight, it, it wasn't as big of a flash, but you could still see something. And, and I kind of got to the freeway, and I started thinking, you know what? I think I just got another ticket. I think I saw that flash go off. Two tickets in five months that dreaded point on her driving record. My mom began to consider taking steps. And this is when she entered a seedy underworld of illegal car accessories. I didn't put my license plate on my car for six months because I just wanted to wait as long as I could just in case I somehow got a, another, another red light ticket. Yeah, because, be yeah. And, and I was reading up about all these things there's this like plastic you can put over your license plate that blurs it so the camera can't read it. 
and there's this like spray paint you can spray on your license plate that makes it you know if the camera were to take a picture it makes it too fuzzy for the camera to read and and I started noticing like if I go to the gas station I'd notice more and more cars especially like fast kind of cars or kids cars that had these that had their license plates behind this plastic they have those and if you if you and so I went on the internet and I started searching for that those things and you know they sell them online you can buy all that stuff online um, what other kinds of things do they sell well it's mostly just the plastic covers and the and the spray paint the, the paint that did you seriously consider absolutely. getting it absolutely solid citizen to peruser of illicit wares. It's what living in a surveillance society can do to a person. From KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Charlie Mintz. As usual on our show, we present an hour of stories on a single theme. And this week, we have for you tales of Big Brother and Little Brother of people coping with our surveillance society. Around 200 years ago, just about when the Declaration of Independence was being signed, an English philosopher named Jeremy Bentham developed a new kind of prison he called a panopticon. He thought the best way to ensure good behavior in prisoners was to create the illusion of perpetual surveillance. To this end, he designed a prison with a tower in the middle, surrounded by enclosed cells. A single guard in the tower could see all the prisoners without himself being seen. And, if he felt like it, he could even leave. Never knowing if they were being observed, prisoners would have to behave as if they always were. But Bentham never saw his prison built. In fact, no prison was ever built after his model. But today on our show, we've got some stories that illustrate just how eerily our lives resemble those of Bentham's theoretical prisoners, and what we might do about it. Today's show was lovingly assembled in three parts. We're all familiar with the Patriot Act, the National Security Agency, and Karl Rove, but less familiar to us are the everyday instances of surveillance we experience. So first up... Stanford author Andrew Altschul tells us a story about a man and his telephone that will make you never want to answer another call. Part 2, if you can't slap them, snap them. How your camera phone plus the internet can help fight street harassment, and whether we should even want that, with insight and commentary from ACLU intern and friend of the show Eli Edwards. Part 3, Roger Daltrey's 250 Fingers. Sophomore Ben Olmstead gives us a few more reasons to do something most of us have already probably done. That's all coming to you this hour from the Stanford Storytelling Project, so turn down the volume, check over your shoulder, and cautiously, cautiously enjoy our show. When you're going down in an unknown town and you don't think you could ever be found, You hide your crown under the ground And you think that it is safe and sound That's why I can get to most places Andrew Altschul, author of the forthcoming novel Lady Lazarus, begins our show with a story about a man on hold. 
The first time the new phone rang, F and his wife were pleased. They had purchased the new top-of-the-line instrument on a recent shopping trip, one of a number of such trips to equip the new townhome. They plugged it in, set various preferences, and went about their day. Some hours later, it rang, a few bars of a pleasant song F's wife had selected from a menu. F and his wife fought playfully to get to the phone first. F managed to pick up the handset, but when he put the receiver to his ear, there was no voice, only a shrill tone which startled him. He held the phone away and then listened again. The ugly sound repeated itself, several seconds of electronic indigestion, then repeated itself a third time. He hung up. His wife pursed her lips and bent to examine the top-of-the-line instrument. Maybe it's still charging, she said. F frowned and rubbed his ear. He looked around the townhome's freshly painted living room. The new furnishings were tasteful and satisfying. An entertainment center blinked various indicators and still unset clocks. A new personal computer purred atop a corner desk. These things happen, said F's wife, with whom he agreed. The next morning, the phone rang as he was brushing his teeth. They didn't usually receive telephone calls so early. He thought it might be a problem at work. But when he picked it up, the grating, high-pitched sound answered back. A drop of toothpaste fell from his chin and plopped on his bare foot. He set the receiver down. His wife leaned out of the shower to ask who had called. No one, said F. I don't know. Wrong number. They went to their respective jobs where both F and his wife made and received several calls throughout the day without mishap. F arrived home first and was pleased to discover that the display on the state-of-the-art telephone indicated seven messages. He loosened his tie and sat down to listen. His wife's father had called from the home. A friend invited them to dinner on Friday. The third message was the awful sound, made more awful by the answering mechanism's amplification. It sounded four times before the machine had disconnected. The next message was from the store that had sold them the entertainment center. The store wanted to know if everything was to F's satisfaction. The remainder of the messages were repetitions of the tone. Each time, the machine had waited a little longer before disengaging. When his wife got home from the fitness center, he told her about the messages. She said it must be a glitch somewhere. But where, he said. She shrugged. It would likely correct itself. She picked up the handset and dialed and spoke to the switchboard at her father's home. See, she said, covering the mouthpiece. It works fine. The next day, when F came home, the display read 26. Worried about losing messages from friends and associates, he scanned through all 26. He tried to hit the state-of-the-art instrument's delete function as quickly as possible, so as not to hear more than a split second of the shrieking tone. He lost one human message this way. When his wife arrived, she found him standing above the machine and glowering. I'm going to call the store tomorrow, he said. Why don't you call the phone company, she said. I'm sure it's just a glitch. He said, I'll do both. The phone rang twice during dinner. They allowed the answering system to pick up and listened in silence to the persistent tone. It seemed louder. We could turn the volume down, said F's wife, her fork suspended over her plate. Yes, he said. At work the next day, he called the store where they had bought the phone and described the problem. The store assured him they had heard no other complaints regarding this particular model and suggested he call the manufacturer's automated helpline. The automated helpline listed a number of problems a consumer might encounter, such as the instrument not being connected to a phone jack or electrical outlet, or the consumer misunderstanding the procedure for recording an outgoing message. The automated helpline suggested that if F had further difficulties, he should contact his local service provider. It was late in the workday. F dialed his home number and entered the code for message retrieval. He thought perhaps the situation had corrected itself. These things work themselves out, his wife had said. You have 51 messages, the pleasant voice said. He slapped the top of his workstation. The man in the next workstation raised his eyebrows, but did not look at F.
F dialed his local telephone service provider and immediately heard light jazz music. There were many options to be listened to and prompts to enter the digits of his home telephone number and social security number. A voice said the average waiting time to speak to a customer service representative was, but did not finish the sentence. The clock at his workstation read 512. He waited for several minutes and then hung up. The phone rang just as F and his wife got into bed. He lay staring at the ceiling for a while, and shortly after he drifted off, it rang again. From several rooms away, the tone sounded softer, echoing through the townhome. It rang again several times during the night. Half awake, F had the strange idea that it was a kind of revenge for his attempts to contact the authorities. He whispered, I'm just going to unplug it. But his wife held his wrist and said, please, my father, what if someone needs to reach us? He lay back down. When it rang again, he ran naked to the living room and shouted into the handset, You have the wrong number. Stop calling. It's the wrong number. The tone drowned him out in his own ear. He cocked his arm as if to throw the handset against the wall, but he didn't do it. That was also the night they first heard the scratching in the walls. The next day, F. spent nearly an hour on the phone with the phone company. They assured him the problem could be easily remedied by initiating an electronic trace procedure. After the phone rang, F. was to dial a code which would be received by the central switchboard. The computer would determine the number from which the unwanted calls were initiating and report it to the phone company's investigative office, a representative of which would contact the offending party and have the calls discontinued. Will they tell me, asked F. Will they tell me who it was? The customer service representative said they would not, but they would ensure that the problem was resolved. F. was pleased, but he wished he could know who was making the calls. He wanted to call them back and give them an earful. Still, after tonight, there would be no more calls, and he was sure this unseemly urge would disappear. That night, they kept the handset of the phone on the new nightstand, and after it rang, F. quickly dialed the code. He squeezed his wife's hand under the covers. It rang twice, and a voice said, The number you were trying to reach cannot be traced. F. looked at the handset and dialed the code again. It said, The number you were trying to reach cannot be traced. It gave another number to call for more information. When he called that number, it said that some numbers cannot be traced. He should call his local telephone company for further assistance. His wife took the handset from him and carried it back to the living room, and F. lay back in the dark bedroom and he could hear again the scratching sound. It was hard to tell if it was inside the walls or outside the townhome or possibly even in the ceiling. The phone rang again before F.'s wife had gotten back in bed. If the automated tracing system can't trace the calls, the customer service representative was afraid there was nothing he could do to help. It was a different representative from the day before. He said F. could try contacting the police, but the police were unlikely to do anything if the calls weren't threatening. But they are threatening, F. said. The representative paused and then said, you know what I mean, sir. F. asked to speak to the representative from the day before, but his current representative had no way of knowing who that was. That morning, F. had pulled out the trash can from under the sink and noticed a number of tiny black pellets. The edges of the brown paper bags his wife folded and stacked were ragged and gnawed. The customer service representative suggested that F. change his phone number and informed him what the fee for that would be. He said he was very sorry, but that these things happen. F. had not slept well for several nights. When he did drift into sleep, he was soon awakened by the sound of the phone ringing. Sometimes it was only a dream. It was Friday, and F. and his wife had dinner plans with the friend who had called earlier in the week. He would go home and turn off the phone just for an hour or so while his wife was at the fitness center. He would take a nap and wake refreshed and ready for a social function. The message counter read 99 and was flashing in a way he hadn't seen before, and when he pressed the playback, the pleasant voice informed him that the memory capacity of the top-of-the-line telephone system had been exceeded. 
He was unable to imagine listening to all 99 messages to find the one or two that might be important. He got in bed with his work clothes on, but the scratching sound in the walls started almost immediately and seemed closer, as though it were right behind his head. He threw open the closet door and saw what he thought was a tail disappear into a corner. The phone company's customer service department was open until six. Change it, he gasped into the handset. I don't care what it costs. The new number was to take effect Monday morning. F's wife was displeased. Now we have to call everyone we know, she said. There would be missed calls. Her father was likely to get the numbers mixed up. What if he has an emergency, she said. F spent Saturday on the couch, grimly calling everyone they knew. Every time he hung up from a call, the phone rang. The pleasant song his wife had selected for the ring option was no longer pleasant. He tried to reset it to a plain ringtone, but there was no such option. His wife spent the day at the fitness center and the mall. She said she needed to get out of the house. They had not gone to dinner with their friend the previous night. They had canceled their plans. On Monday, F would call the credit card companies, banks, utilities, insurance companies, IRA managers, mortgage officers, doctors, etc. He would spend most of his day on phone queues. It would be worth it. Yes, we were having some trouble and decided to change the number, is what he said to their friends and relatives. These things happen, he said, and tried to laugh. He was up to G in their joint telephone directory. The entertainment center was displaying a football game, but F had to turn off the surround sound while making the calls. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw movement, and when he turned, he caught a glimpse of something snub-nosed and gray, a shadow scurrying across the kitchen floor. At noon on Monday, he called the old number, and a pleasant voice said it had been disconnected. He called the new number, and it rang, and F hung up and leaned back in his chair. He felt like crying. He felt like calling the phone company to profess his gratitude. He applied himself to his work, anticipating a wonderful night's sleep, and was cheerful to everyone who stopped by his workstation. He picked up flowers for his wife, and after dinner they had intercourse. The idea of an uninterrupted night's sleep was like a perfect symphony, and he delayed turning out the light in order to prolong the anticipation. At a quarter past four in the morning, the phone rang. I'm going to kill somebody, he told his wife in the dark. I swear it. She said nothing. He fantasized about buying a weapon, but he didn't know who there was to shoot. In the living room, the answering device broadcast the piercing tone through the townhome. The scratching began a moment later. F tried to bury his head under the pillow. He bit the bed sheets. It was all breaking down. When the alarm went off, he was unable to get in the shower or get dressed. He called his office to say he would be taking a mental wellness day. After his wife left, he sat in his bathrobe on the living room floor. The phone rang continually. The machine answered and the tone howled. No sooner did the machine disconnect than the phone rang again. A mouse darted across the kitchen floor. He stared at the phone and the entertainment center and the tasteful new furnishings. It was all very hard to recognize. The phone rang. F sat very still and tried to meditate. He had friends who meditated. He thought perhaps he could train himself not to hear the telephone or to incorporate it into his consciousness in such a way that it no longer disturbed him. He listened very closely to the tone. He counted the intervals between tones, which were always precisely four seconds in duration. The tone itself was between eight and nine seconds in duration. He turned the phone volume to maximum and examined the tone. It was very complex. It had many layers. It had periods and changes. Certain layers were constant and high-pitched, and others had waves and were more mechanical, and a kind of whisper ran through it all. He contemplated that the tone likely contained some kind of information. He tried to understand what that information was. There were many mice in the kitchen now, scurrying in concert over the floor, the countertops, gnawing at the molding. The phone rang. 
The phone rang. He felt that violence again gathering itself in his belly. A customer service representative was calling to inquire if the new telephone number was satisfactory. The man's voice sounded strange to him, very bland in comparison to the tone. It thanked F for using the local telephone company. The phone rang. There was no one left to call. F sat in his bathrobe in the middle of the living room and remembered hearing someone once say, you cannot use the master's tools to bring down the master's house. He couldn't remember who had said this or why. There were a lot of mice in the kitchen. The entertainment center's clocks were blinking, though he had set them to the correct time a week ago. The phone rang, and the tone sounded, and the state-of-the-art message counter blinked at him, and he wondered whether it was a kind of malice that had invaded his townhome, but he knew that it wasn't, and that was worse. What he wanted more than anything was for someone to be responsible for the tone. Even if he could never find that person, just the existence of someone for F to despise, to fantasize about injuring, torturing, dismembering. He did not want to become a murderer, only for there to be an object of his murderousness, somewhere to put it. He was a kind man by nature, everyone said so. He stretched out on the living room floor and wept onto the faux parquet because he was a kind man who had been brought to such thoughts. The phone rang. It took him some time to ascertain the location of the offices of his local phone company. The people in the office were clearly unaccustomed to local phone service customers pursuing their customer service issues in person. He spoke with several people, each of whom asked him to please call the toll-free number and speak to a customer service representative. He explained that he had done this, but felt his particular customer service issue would be better resolved if he could just talk to a customer service representative face-to-face. He asked where he could please find one. They're not here, he was repeatedly told. He was certain that the uniform look of horror on their faces was not a reaction to any expression of his own, but to the question itself. If they aren't here, then where are they, he asked. No one knew. There were many phones ringing down many corridors. Computer terminals grinned from every flat surface. You mean there are hundreds of customer service representatives available to take my customer service call, and no one knows where any of them are? The regional offices of the local telephone company were in another city, over an hour away. Throughout the drive, F could feel the violence in his belly expanding. He could hear the tone in his mind, as well as the song his wife had programmed into their telephone. The people in the regional offices of the local phone company were not at all pleased by his request to speak to a customer service representative in person, or to be given an address where he might find one. There were many people waiting in the comfortable reception area, but none was a customer. The receptionist told him there was no one there who could talk to him, but he smiled very politely and said he would wait until someone arrived. A woman sitting next to F looked frightened and changed her seat. I don't want to hurt anybody, he said. They stared at him. My phone won't stop ringing, he added. They all pretended to read magazines. The receptionist traded glances with the security officer in the doorway and said something quietly into the microphone attached to her head. Sometime later, F was ushered down a carpeted hallway. It was no longer possible to determine if the phones he heard ringing were external to his thoughts. A nervous-looking man waited for F with his hands folded atop a desk. The man was much younger than F, with stiff blonde hair that was black at the roots. There was a small silver ball beneath his lower lip. These things happen, he told F. There's nothing we can do. F said, they're your phone lines. You must have a way of finding out where the calls are coming from. The man said there was no way of ascertaining that information. The calls were routed through many computer systems and could have come from any of countless networks, relays, satellites, nodes, cables, wholesalers, cellular grids, or other unspecified sources of telecommunication. He said given so many possibilities, F could surely understand why they couldn't trace every call received by each of their millions of customers. Just think about how many phone calls are made every day, he told F. It boggles the mind. 
F blinked at him. He was extremely tired. He thought the man should at least offer him a cup of coffee. When the man spoke, the little ball under his lip bobbed. When the man stopped speaking, the little ball fell still. That's just not right, F said. It is right, said the little ball. Modern telephone systems are more productive than at any time in the past. In the future, they'll be even more so. You should come to my house, F said. He considered taking the man hostage and forcing him to sit in his living room. You should come hear it. You're killing me. The phone rang. The man pointed a finger at F. Don't threaten me, he said. Who are you to threaten me? F looked at the tip of the man's finger and felt a great roar beginning to push out of him. He could imagine himself picking up the handset of the man's telephone and clubbing him with it. Security, the man yelled, and two men hurried through the door. Each took one of F's arms and he kicked at the chair and tried to hook a foot under the man's desk. The phone rang and F writhed in the grip of the security personnel. The young man had backed into the corner of the small office and was clutching a pen as though he would stab F with it if F got near him. The little ball quivered. The security personnel dragged F backward through the doorway, and F hooked his legs on the door frame. One of the security officers held a plastic device to F's side, and something hot stung him, and his arms spasmed uncontrollably, and his legs turned to rubber, and the fluorescent lights in the ceiling turned colors and flickered and disappeared entirely. He had the sensation of falling, slowly. When he regained consciousness, he heard elevator doors open, and then he was being dragged backward down a long hallway. He could feel a line of drool running down his chin. The floor and walls were concrete, and there were large pipes overhead. They dragged him past many doors, and behind each one, F heard ringing. One of the security officers said, they should pay us extra for this shit, and the other grunted. F tried to pull his arms away, but he could not make them do what he wanted them to do. Phones were ringing on both sides, and nobody was answering. The tone had been looking for something, F thought. It had been asking for a response. If he'd just known how to answer it, the tone might have understood and stopped calling. He's coming too, said a security officer. F tried to say something and to get his legs under him, but he couldn't make his body work correctly. One of the doors was slightly ajar, and he thought he saw someone standing inside with a phone to their ear. So many phones ringing, an ocean of phones ringing. The security guard stopped and let go of his arms, and his body folded to the concrete, and the back of his head knocked against a closed door. He tried to bring his hands up in case one of the guards kicked him. He could feel that hot thing inside of him again, pushing its way up. It would come out soon. The guards turned away. F tried to say something, but all that came out was more drool. What happens to these people, said one of the guards. Beats me, said the other guard. Their footsteps echoed in the hallway amid the syncopated ringing of phones. F had enough control of his body now to bang his head repeatedly against the door behind him, but the guards did not turn around. Has the new car working out, he heard one of them say. Elevator doors opened and closed, and F was alone in the long hallway with the ringing of the phones. He banged his head against the door and fought against the scream in his throat. He did not know where he was or how he would get back home. What was there to get back to, he thought. The phones rang now in such a way that there were no silences in between. When he was able to move his legs, F stood up slowly and wiped his chin. He took several deep breaths. The door behind him said exit, and he steadied himself and opened the door and entered a tiny room with no windows. There was nothing in the room except for a small table. On top of the table was a telephone. It was an old-fashioned black phone, but instead of a circular dialing mechanism, it had only a black, mute face. The phone was not ringing. F was shaking all over, tears running down his face. The endless ring of the other phones was like a strange wind behind him. The only thing to do was to pick up the phone in front of him and hope that someone on the other end would tell him what to do. He closed his eyes and steadied his hand for long enough to grasp the handset and bring it to his ear. There was a dial tone and then the sound of an automatic dialer. He would ask for help. 
He practiced it in his mind. Help me. The phone rang. He grit his teeth against the thing surging in his throat, but he didn't think he could hold it back any longer. The phone rang again, and a familiar-sounding voice answered and said hello in a pained, desperate way, and F fell to his knees and said, please, please, you have to help me, but when he opened his mouth, all that came through was a terrible, high-pitched wail of inhuman loss. Andrew Altschul at Stanford University. Part 2. If you can't slap him, snap him. That's the motto of Hollaback, a website devoted to fighting street harassment through blogging and cell phone cameras. A typical post on the San Francisco affiliate site describes a man on the BART giving a free show to the woman across the aisle from him, all the while peeking over his paper to see if she's noticed. Above the story is a picture of a bald African-American man wearing very short shorts, whose face is concealed by a newspaper, but whose junk, due to aforementioned shorts, is quite visible. A few weekends ago, my assistant producer Josh and I went to interview the woman who made this special moment possible. The sharing of it, that is, not the flashing. Her name is Jessica, and she's the founder of the San Francisco affiliate of Hollaback. I asked her how she got involved at the site. Hollaback actually is a national phenomenon that was started in New York. And at my job that I'm currently at, I used to round up all the news for the day that had to do with environmental stuff. And on one of these news feeds um, was a story about Hollaback, New York. And I read it, and I thought, you know, how come there isn't one of these in San Francisco? And I emailed them and asked if I could start one for San Francisco, and they were really enthusiastic. And I just started one within a couple weeks. When I started it, I thought there must be other women out there who want who wanted to tell their story and who want to get this down on paper and a blog, if you will. But when I started it, the way that the, the reaction that happened was women were writing in about things that had happened in the past. So they had been bottling up these stories. And some of them were pretty bad. Some were pretty mild. But they had been holding on to these stories for years. And then they had this outlet to write about it. Well, I mean, there's the, there's the just walking down the sidewalk and someone's like, hey, baby, you're fine or whatever. And it's like, uh, you know, that's annoying, but not that bad. Um, I mean, luckily, I haven't been physically threatened ever, but um, my girlfriend at the time who I was with was physically threatened by a man because she's androgynous, and it was really scary, and there were people around, and the other people weren't... They didn't say anything, they didn't do anything, they just kind of were watching, like, what's going on, what is he going to do, and that was, um, that was probably the worst that I've had. Although, that's not true, I mean, at a BART station, I had a guy come up to me, I was sitting, listening to my iPod, and I had a guy come up to me and start saying just really crude things about what he wanted to do to me and this and that, and I was just like, you know, get away from me, I'm, I'm waiting for my train, you know, like, I'm not asking you to come over and talk to me, and... Um, so, I mean, I could go on. I'm trying to think of other specifics, but there's just a lot. It's just something that, for women, for most women I know, it happens so often that you, unless it really stands out or it's, like, really intense, you kind of just put it in the back of your mind and go about your business because otherwise you would be really angry and upset all the time. Street harassment is really just about power. At least that's what I think, and I know the, the founders of Hollaback New York uh, feel the same way. It's basically just about um, 
power play and you know who's who has power in the public sphere and so for women to be able to take back some of that power by making it unsafe for harassers I think I think that is ultimately the point of this whole project is to balance out the power Yeah, it's basically just bringing all these groups of friends that talk about it together and, you know, making it more of a grassroots movement, making it a ton of people who are talking about it and who are saying, okay, this is happening in every city and all over the world even. I mean, there's, there's sites in other countries now too, so. Most women I know are like, that's awesome. Why hasn't this been around longer? Guys I know range from like, oh, that's great, you know, that's that shouldn't be happening to, oh God, what if I say the wrong thing and they take my picture? Or what if I have harassed someone and I didn't know it in the past? Which is not, I don't think that's a very realistic fear personally, but it, it really runs the gamut. I haven't actually talked to any men who are like, who have said that's wrong or you shouldn't be doing that or why can't guys just harass people on the street? I've never come across that yet. So. Mostly I've just gotten people writing in, um, women, I had, a, well, okay, I had some women who write in and they say, oh, I can't believe this, this is here and I didn't know about it, this is great, I'm so excited, I'm going to write in all my stories. And I actually had a guy write in and it was really great feedback and he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a conservative Republican and I just, I don't think it's okay that people do this, that, that men harass women on the street. And I think that what you're doing is great, and I think people assume that, that I wouldn't support it, but I do. And it was just, I think that was my favorite thing that I've gotten in the inbox for the site, it was because it was just, like I said, like it was just not stereotypical. He was very supportive and excited about it. And so it's like, maybe he's going to go tell his friends now. Writing law about street harassment is next to impossible. It's just really not something, because, you know, I don't want there to be laws saying you can't say certain things in public. And it is about the tone, and it is about the intention, and that's not something that you can enforce, that a cop can enforce. It's just not, especially when there's no physical exchange going on. So I think that a grassroots movement where it's just a change in the way that people think about it even, is necessary and I don't think that can I don't think that can come from the top down. So all I can really do is document it and make sure that everyone knows that it can be documented basically, right? Yeah, I mean documenting it so that people know that it's not just gonna be tolerated, you know, that people aren't just gonna brush it off their and go about their business. Hollaback seemed like a website that was using the powers of the Panopticon for good rather than evil. But we wanted another opinion, so we sought out Eli Edwards, a third-year law student at Santa Clara University and intern for the... Well, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Eli Edwards. I am a third-year law student at Santa Clara University. I used to be a librarian. And um, currently, I am, in addition to studying the law, I am a technology policy intern for the um, American Civil Liberties Union Northern California chapter. But yeah, the, the hollerback um, phenomenon, like I said, I really understand it. Um, being a woman, I've been 
harassed and catcalled and, um, well, not physically accosted, but I've been in situations where I felt really uncomfortable. And so, um, and I was raised by Southerners, so my behavior in public is very much guided by you're polite to strangers, you're formal, you are, you know, you, you don't go off, you know, you remain civilized. But that just adds to the frustration of, I really want to take this guy down, but <laughs> my training um, prevents me. So the idea of having a place to vent about this with the extra incentive of I can call this guy out and perhaps warn other women or put them on notice and maybe it'll be a deterrent and maybe the next woman he tries this on, she'll be prepared and she'll be able to answer back or if he gets out of hand, then there'll be other people watching. And um, it's, like I said, it's a very intriguing uh, phenomenon and I can totally see where where it comes from and what the benefits are and why it's been embraced in a number of cities. Do you think it works? That's hard to say. I haven't really looked at it um, extensively. I'm not a I'm not a feminist scholar and I don't uh, really study web studies but I suspect to some extent it must work or it, it wouldn't be as popular as it is mm -hmm. so and I think w from what I read at the website they are using the right tools in terms of not encouraging women to you know confront them directly but to you know take notes get out your camera phone if someone is doing something you know obscene um, you know be ready to report um, you know, just be careful. And then the, the, the warning function. So the idea of going to this website and, you know, seeing, oh, there's this guy at, say, the MacArthur Bart who tends to flash women or something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that you're not unprepared say, or even being able to forward that on to whatever appropriate authorities. I think there's quite a bit of power there. And it's just good to get it out. I mean, it's really frustrating dealing with, with sexual harassment. So, and I know uh, a lot of women in various situations, they tend to think maybe it was just me. Maybe I was sending the wrong signals. Maybe it was just ah, a bad day and they just sort of don't talk about it. But talking about it and seeing all those stories, I think helps. Eli goes on to admit that she can see how the site might be abused but says as far as threats to privacy go, this one isn't much of a worry. It comes down to a reasonable expectation of privacy, and if you're hurling epithets in public, you don't really have one. Um, I think there are definitely um, those sorts of dangers that are attendant with the phenomenon, with the website. I mean, it's difficult because this is, quote, public behavior. So if you... Uh, are able to, if you're experiencing someone who's yelling violent epithets at you in public or they are flashing you in public, that's not 
protected there's activity no and there's 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 not a strong expectation of privacy when you're in public so um, you can't so it would be hard for that person to claim that their privacy has been invaded because they are doing this um, in public venues but again as you mentioned there is the possibility of abuse of someone um, making up false charges in order to um, get revenge or in order to humiliate or demean someone else. Mm -hmm. um, there is the possibility of just not having enough context to the situation. It could have, this could have been part of, you know, two people who know each other who may be fighting and then something escalates, uh, but we only see the side of one person. And because, and if they get, um, hit with the reputation of harasser, that could uh, negatively impact their reputation in a lot of ways. It can get them in trouble with the law if, you know, if, the if, you know, if there's an investigation, their reputation among their friends, their community, their coworkers, if this gets out, is obviously would be impacted. So um, there's some interesting privacy and interesting um, reputational issues that are also going on. So but those seem kind of like cases of individuals misusing the system. Would you, you wouldn't say that there's a problem with the system as a whole, it's just individuals who kind of don't, don't take the proper time to give context or abuse it? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, there is a very large and yet unstated or understated argument um, going on nowadays regarding um, Web 2.0 and social networking and our ability to submit voluntary information, not only about ourselves, but about the people who surround us. So, I mean, for instance, um, I attend Santa Clara University, and last year, um, three undergrads got in trouble because they were at a party that had that was based on the theme of the party was based on um, Latino stereotypes and they showed up in costume that exploited these um, stereotypes and that was found to have violated the um, code of conduct at all the students because it's a, it's a private school it's a private Jesuit school they uh, it found that that conduct violated the um, the um, the, the contract that they signed. Um, now, the way this got out was that at the party, someone was taking pictures, not the people who actually wore the costumes, not the Santa Clara students, but someone else was taking pictures, and they put those pictures on Facebook, where everyone else in their Facebook profile could see them, and someone else in the Facebook profile saw it and thought, this isn't right, and complained to the administration, and these guys got busted. So there are huge issues nowadays as to what is, what is our privacy in public? What can we do? The nature of technology is changing so that we are under a lot of surveillance. And it's not always or necessarily government surveillance. There are, you know, 
cam cameras in your in the ATM. There's, you know, Google taking pictures for their new map feature Street View. <laughs> um, there are your friends or even strangers taking, you know, photos with their camera phone if, you know, in public and the results going on to the web. So I'm not sure we have ever really been anonymous in public settings, but now it's possible to make, to record things more easily that happen in public settings and distribute that and make it persistent and make it findable in ways that could be rather embarrassing, if that makes sense. Part three, Roger Daltrey's 250 Fingers, or Social Networking as Personal Blankie. A participatory panopticon, if you want to be cynical about it. But you can keep that cynicism, because Ben Olmsted sees Facebook as the gateway to a brighter, more connected future, and he wants to tell you all about it. Daltrey is lamenting here the fact that he has less than six friends. I think he should be rejoicing in the fact that he doesn't have a mutant hand with 250 fingers on it, which is what he would need if he joined the millions that have thronged to Facebook. Hey kids, can I talk to you about you for a bit? You're probably stressed, you might be busy. Likely as not, you have a whole bunch of difficult things that other people, professors, parents, boyfriends or girlfriends, are suggesting that you do, telling you that you must do. In times like these, we seem to let things that are hard, but not mandatory, slip through the cracks. Things like washing clothes, financial planning, and hanging out with friends not in our immediate vicinity. We become like a deck put together with nails. We are slowly pulled apart by the elements, schoolwork, money work, familial responsibilities, and new, more convenient friends. What's a cure for this slow deterioration? You guessed it, an inclined plane wrapped around a metal shaft. That's right, a screw. Facebook will screw you, together with your friends, by keeping you in constant contact. And here's the best part, it's super easy. Easy to make friends, easy to feel secure, easy to keep close watch on your new friends. Easy, easy, easy. Facebook makes it so easy to check up on people that if you are a political dissenter in a country that crushes dissenters, I would advise you not to have a Facebook at all. <laughs> uh, but seriously now, our country celebrates freedom, so don't worry, Facebook away. The first step in watching over your friends is the newsfeed. This bad boy needs no work from you at all. You log in and boom, top 20 news stories about your friends show up. The pictures, the events, the hookups. But how will I choose which news I want to see, you might ask? To that I say, worry not, the servers at Facebook will decide for you. These beasts will take some of the control away, but they know your habits better than you do. 
freeing you from making poor social choices. Let's face it, they give you the freedom not to have to make one more decision. That's fine. But what if you want to take a little bit of agency into your stalking, or monitoring, well, keeping up to date with your friends? Use the convenient filters, like recently changed, which will highlight your friends that have changed their profile in some way. Or recently added, which can find all those people you haven't really gotten to know yet. If these filters do not fill your observational needs, good old-fashioned browsing is sure to turn up something interesting. Browsing. That sounds a lot like shopping. You might say, we don't shop for people, we shop for objects. Things that have a set of characteristics and not much more. Now don't you wish there was a way to do that with people? Let me let you in on a little secret. Only about 60 million people know enough to use it. It's called Facebook. That's right, boys and girls. Not only can you find a bunch of friends on Facebook, but you can turn them to easy-to-handle, easy-to-forget objects, like a box of tissues, some Tupperware, or a plastic shovel. Wow, that sounds dangerous, you might say. Those things are all dead. Don't worry, you don't need to kill your friends. All you need to do is treat their profile like the object it is. Remove the actual person from your thought process when you're browsing Facebook. That's all there is to it. So go on, kids. Just give them your email address and you're on. Now find a picture of yourself. You want everyone to know what you look like, don't you? Tell them a little bit about yourself, but not too much. Just the basics. Who you are, what you like to do, your favorite movies and music. This is called sharing. Doesn't sharing feel good? Now you're in a network, and anyone else in your network can learn interesting things about you. Unless you make your profile private. But that's not very nice. How can your new friends learn about you if you do that? What? You're still worried about your privacy? No! You have to keep an open mind about this, kids. Just let me say that Facebook does not invade the privacy of the users. It helps them give their privacy away. Voluntarily. I know what you're thinking. Why would someone give up their privacy so easily? Well, people give it up for social acceptance. And for security, because in the social network, everyone knows that everyone's watching them, just like in your friendly neighborhood watch. And, as with your neighborhood watch, you never know when people are watching you, so you can just assume that they always are. I don't know about you, but having my peers constantly watching is like a cozy blanket, keeping me safe, warm, and totally secure. Now who doesn't like a blanket? No one. And that's why everybody tries to make their Facebook profile interesting and clever enough to warrant observation. Because if they don't, they won't feel loved and watched over. And they'll also be selfish, because without each individual doing their part in the survey, the neighborhood watch, the security blanket begins to unravel. So for all this protection and security, thank the wonderful people at Facebook who make it possible. And remember, that security comes from the knowledge that you are being looked over and looked at. 24 hours a day, every day of the year. So be sure to do your part as well. Keep a close eye on your friends, because you know they're watching you. That was Ben Olmsted. He's here all week. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willingans, Josh Riedel, and myself. Good luck in Portland, Josh. Thanks to Andrew Altrul, Eli Edwards, Jess from Hollaback, Ben Olmsted. Producer and engineers producer and engineer for today's show was Micah Craddy. And thanks to Bob Smith for his help in the studio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kay Flay, Johnny Wynn, Chris Iyer, and Zach Katagiri, as well as Maxwell Citrone. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West as well.
Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. You can also find an interview with author Andrew Altschul there. Tune in next week when we'll hear stories about belief and non-belief. I'm Charlie Mintz. That was Living the Panopticon, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Palo Alto City Council Meeting. Bye.